I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derash Chai Experiment, the show where we let the entirety of the text lead our conclusions as we study the Bible. Well, we have made it to 100 episodes, and if you have made it this far, that's awesome. Thank you for joining us for this journey. Well, the Book of Numbers has a number of conventions that it uses to help us, the reader, to gain an understanding of what's being explored in the text. There is the way that the Book of Numbers is split into three main portions. The first section of the three, which we're still in, sets up the book. Expectations are expressed for who Israel is to be. Challenges are addressed, such as jealousy and idolatry, that Israel is going to experience in the second section of the book. And directions are given for anyone who wishes to elevate themselves to a position of service to God, even if they aren't part of those who have been chosen to serve Him directly. And this week we will encounter yet another quality that Israel was expected to have. One that has not passed away with the ages, but is reiterated over and over throughout the Bible. The second of these three portions is the actual travels in the wilderness, the, the trials and the responses of the people as they move from place to place and face challenge after challenge. And interspersed among these stories of trial are instructions that, on the surface, seem disjointed. But when we dig into these chapters, we will find that they are not disjointed at all, but are very pointed. But that is for another day. The third portion of the book of Numbers then goes into the events at the end of the wilderness, the preparation for the invasion, issues of inheritance and settlement, and a final accounting of the warriors. And throughout the book, we find that the asides that are taken, those chapters that seem to be out of place, if we stop and consider the entire scope of the book and their place in the text, we discover that these asides are one of the conventions that helps us to discern the subtext of the text. They enhance and highlight for us what the main topics are being explored from chapter to chapter, if only we can discern what it is that connects these chapters to the previous. Recognizing this convention then leads us to discovering yet another convention of the text that is truly just an extrapolation of the first two conventions, and this convention is the one that I call flow. The progression of ideas that are explored in the text and how there is a single train of ideas that is being explored from one end of the book to another. And the theme that connects them all is an exploration of the nature of man. And this week we continue the flow of the first third of the book. This flow is one that we've gone through on several occasions, so I'm not going to recount the entire flow up to this point, but I do want to remind us of where we are at this point. Two lessons ago, we began exploring the topic of dedication to Hashem. It began with the dedication that anyone could participate in by taking the vow of a Nazarite, 
a way of entering into a form of service to Hashem. Then last chapter, we read of the dedication of the tabernacle as it began to fulfill its role as the dwelling place of God and the meeting place between God and man. This week, we will find the topic shift a bit, and yet, not at all. There is still the topic of dedication to be found in these chapters as the Levites are elevated to their place of service. But there is another topic that is covered in this chapter that overlaps this theme of dedication. So let's read this Parsha and then discuss what ideas are present in these chapters further. Numbers 789-921 through 921. And when Moshe went into the tent of appointment to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the lid of atonement that was on the Ark of the Witness from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you ascend to trim the lamps, let the seven lamps give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand, as Hashem commanded Moshe. And this is the work of the lampstand. Beaten work of gold, from its base to its blossoms, it is beaten work, according to the pattern which Hashem had shown Moshe, so he made the lampstand. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel, and you shall cleanse them, and do this to them, to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of sin offering on them, and they shall shave all their body, and shall wash their garments, and cleanse themselves. And shall take a young bull with its grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, while you take another young bull as a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of appointment, and you shall assemble all the congregation of the children of Israel. And you shall bring the Levites before Hashem, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall wave the Levites before Hashem, a wave offering from the children of Israel, so shall they be for doing the service of Hashem. And the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bull, and one shall be prepared as a sin offering, and the other as an ascending offering to Hashem, to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and his sons, and then wave them, a wave offering to Hashem. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Then, after that, the Levites shall go in to do the service in the tent of appointment. When you have cleansed them and waved them as a wave offering, for they are given ones, given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. From all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast, on the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim. I set them apart unto myself." And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel, to do the service of the children of Israel in the tent of appointment, and to make atonement for the children of Israel, that there be no plague among the children of Israel when their children of Israel come near the set-apart place. Thus Moshe and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all that Hashem commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so the children of Israel did to them. And the Levites cleansed themselves and washed their garments, and Aaron waved them a wave offering before Hashem, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then, after the Levites went in to do the service of the tent of appointment before Aaron and his sons, as Hashem commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, This applies to the Levites from twenty-five years old and above. Let him come into active service in the service of the tent of appointment. And at the age of fifty years they retire from active service of the service, and serve no more. But they shall attend with their brothers in the tent of appointment to guard the duty, but shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the first new moon of the second year after they had come out of Mitzrayim, saying, 
Now let the children of Israel perform the Pesach at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this new moon, between the evenings, perform it at its appointed time, according to all its laws and right rulings you perform it. And Moshe spoke to the children of Israel to perform the Pesach. So they performed the Pesach on the fourteenth day of the new moon, between the evening in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that Hashem commanded Moshe, so the children of Israel did. But there were men who were defiled for a being of a man, so that they were not able to perform the Pesach on that day. So they came before Moshe and Aaron that day, and those men said to him, We are defiled for the being of a man. Why are we withheld from bringing near the offering of Hashem at its appointed time among the children of Israel? And Moshe said to them, Wait, let me hear what Hashem commands concerning you. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When any male of you or your generation is unclean for a being, or as far away on a journey, he shall still perform the Pesach of Hashem. On the fourteenth day of the second new moon, between the evenings, they perform it. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they eat it. They do not leave of it until morning, and they do not break a bone of it. According to all the laws of the Pesach, they perform it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey, and has failed to perform the Pesach, that same being shall be cut off from among his people, because he did not bring the offering of Hashem at its appointed time. That man bears his sin. And when a stranger sojourns among you, then he shall perform the Pesach of Hashem. He shall do so according to the law of the Pesach and according to its right ruling. You have one law, both for the stranger and the native of the land. And on the day that the dwelling place was raised up, the cloud covered the dwelling place, the tent of the witness. From evening until morning it was above the dwelling place like the appearance of fire. Thus it was continually. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tent, after that the children of Israel would depart. And in the place where the cloud dwelt, there the children of Israel would camp. At the mouth of Hashem, the children of Israel departed. And at the command of Hashem they camped. They remained camped as long as the cloud dwelt above the dwelling place. Even when the cloud lingered many days above the dwelling place, the children of Israel guarded the charge of Hashem and did not depart. And so it was, when the cloud dwelt only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they departed. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud was taken up, they departed. Back in the book of Leviticus, when we reached the end of chapter 23, at the beginning of chapter 24, we saw the text, for a very short time, turn to the menorah and how Aaron was to approach the service in the menorah. While we were there, I pointed out how there are some who point to this occurrence of a piece of text about the menorah just after the chapter on the festivals, and they'll point to it as a veiled nod to Hanukkah in the Torah. Well, this week we see a very similar thing happen in the text. We just went through the chapter on dedication of the tabernacle, and in the text we found the word Hanukkah used for its first four times. And just after this chapter, to open the following chapter, we once again find an aside on the menorah. This occurrence, coupled with the previous, has led some to point to these two places and use them to legitimize Hanukkah as a Torah-commanded feast. Now, I'm not going to say that that's not the case. I enjoy the celebration of Hanukkah, and I find that it has a powerful message for any who participate in the eight days of celebration, contemplation, and dedication. But I do question... Are these two seemingly misplaced asides on the menorah just after these two significant places in the text veiled references to the latter holiday of Hanukkah? Uh, Frankly, I have no idea. The fact of the matter is, is that if there were no other purpose for the text on the menorah at these places in the text, 
then the case could be much more substantial that these occurrences point to Hanukkah, and it might have more weight to it. And perhaps that's why some choose to make these sections about Hanukkah, is because they cannot discern another purpose for these sections of text. But the fact is that when we examine this seemingly misplaced occurrence of the text on the menorah in Leviticus, we find that there was a reason for the placement of these few verses apart from forcing it to be about Hanukkah. We found earlier that it was used as a segue into the topic of leadership from the primary focus of the book of Leviticus on the priesthood, and into the topic of governmental leadership that was then explored in the remainder of the next several chapters. When we take the text as a whole that we're reading today, and we consider the overarching topic that's present throughout, we once again find that there is a reason for the placement of this aside of the menorah at this point in the text. And that reason has nothing to do with the holiday of Hanukkah. And yet, it has everything to do with the topic of being dedicated to the service of Hashem. Now, as I stated earlier, the topic of dedication does continue in chapter 8 of Numbers as we go from the dedication of the person to serve Hashem by their own choice in the Nazarite vow to the communal dedication of a building to serve Hashem. To this week, we read of the dedication of the Levites to the service of Hashem, their appointment and consecration for the service that they are to perform. So let's look at this first before going on into the larger topic of discussion that the menorah seems to be daring us to dive into. So this dedication ceremony for the Levites is one that in many ways mimics previous ceremonies that we've already read of. Another process begins with the cleansing that includes the washing of clothing and the shaving of all body hair. But the first thing that we read of is a phrase that is unique to this passage. They are to be cleansed with the water of purification. Or in my translation, and in the Hebrew, the water of sin. What is the water of sin, the water of chataat? Well, we can only assume that this is the water that is the result of the red heifer sacrifice that we will read of later in the book of Numbers. This is the water that was to cleanse a person of corpse defilement or coming into contact with a dead body. Now, if we read ahead, we find that this is likely what's being spoken of, but this has not yet been addressed in Scripture. There is another cleansing ceremony that contains a very similar action of sprinkling water for purification and washing clothes. And in this place, we also find a command to shave off all of the hair of the person. We find this in Leviticus 14, verses 6 through 9. Let him take the live bird and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dip them in the live bird and the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird loose in the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his garments and shall shave off all his hair and wash himself in water and shall be clean. Then after that he comes into the camp, but shall stay outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day it shall be that he shaves all the hair off of his head, and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair he shaves off, and he shall wash his garments and wash his body in water, and shall be clean. If we were to come into this chapter fresh, without foreknowledge of the red heifer sacrifice, we would find that the ritual most closely approximates this cleansing of the Levites is the cleansing of the leper from Tzarot. In fact, the inclusion of washing garments and shaving all body hair it points us more to Tzarot cleansing ritual than it does to simply a cleansing from corpse defilement. 
there seems to be some connection between these two cleansing events that we could spend some time meditating on. We're not going to today, but do so in your own time. After this cleansing ceremony, there is another ceremony that is accomplished. The second ceremony is a substitutionary appointment that occurs on several levels. First, there are two bulls brought and the people are gathered. And then the people lay their hands on the Levites. Again, all throughout the Torah, when we read of a person laying their hands on something, it is for that thing to then serve as a substitution for the person who is laying their hands. And the first thing that happens is that all of the children of Israel lay their hands on the Levites. Why? As an acknowledgement that they have been chosen to serve in their place. No longer are children taken from each tribe and from each family to serve as priests and servants in the tabernacle. Instead, it's one tribe that serves and the rest of the people, they're freed from this responsibility. But they're also freed of the honor that accompanies this appointment as well. But these men are still men who are steeped in sin and death. They are human, and so a communal sin offering must be offered on their behalf. And the communal sin offering is that prescribed in Leviticus 5 is a bull. And so the Levites, after having the people acknowledge their place as a substitution on their behalf for everyone from the rest of the tribes, the Levites then turn right around and lay their own hands on the head of a bull that is to be offered on their behalf, and a sequence of substitution is accomplished. The people recognize their representatives before God, and the Levites recognize their own place as sinful men in service to Hashem, the God of life. And there between God and men stands this one tribe, this group of sinful men who God had chosen and appointed to stand in this gap. And that is what verses 13 through 19 then state explicitly. The Levites are being chosen to serve Hashem, and they are serving as a substitution for the firstborn of Israel. And Hashem is taking them to be his. They are being willingly given to Hashem by the people. And then in verse 19, the gift is then transferred. The Levites belong to Hashem for his service, but he, in turn, is willingly giving them to Aaron to assist him and his sons in their duties as priests in the tabernacle. And as verse 19 continues, we find that this entire process of substitution is one that is necessary in order to avoid Hashem breaking out against the people. Now, we've seen this happen before in the events of the golden calf in Exodus 32. The people transgressed God's holiness and sidestepped the order of authority, and a plague broke out among them, and some were killed. But the only person standing in the gap that is now being filled by the entire tribe of Levi at that time was Moses. But we'll find throughout the course of the book of Numbers that we will read of another occasion of a plague breaking out among the people. And when this happens, we will find it occurs once again when the people step outside of the structure of authority that's being instituted here. Numbers 16, 46-48 So Moses said to Aaron, Take the fire holder and put fire in it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and go, hurry to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from Hashem, the plague has begun. And Aaron took it as Moshe commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly and saw that the plague had begun among the people. And he laid on the incense and made atonement for the people and stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. When did this happen? When 250 of the firstborn decided that they do indeed wish to be priests and to serve Hashem in the tabernacle despite being replaced by the Levites. 
when some of the Levites decided that they wanted to be governmental leaders and were not content with their place as servants for a building. And when they step outside of this structure of authority that this chapter and others establish, there is a plague that answers. In fact, even though we read in English of other plagues breaking out throughout the book of Numbers, those other occurrences do not use the Hebrew word plague or nagaf. In each case, another word is used, and that word is then translated as plague by translators. But the Hebrew word nagaf only occurs in this chapter and in Numbers 16 in the course of the book of Numbers. In verse 20 through 22, we don't read of anything new occurring in the text. If we look at it chiastically, we do discover that the central portion of a chiasm is the statement that Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And so the Levites entered into the service of the tabernacle. And chapter 8 closes with just how long it was that the Levites were to serve in the tabernacle. Now, as we discussed earlier in chapter 4, there is a seeming contradiction in the age of the Levites when they were to enter into the service of the tent. In chapter 4, that time began at the age of 30, but here we read that it begins at the age of 25. But since I dealt with that seeming contradiction when we were in chapter 4, I'm not going to spend any time on it today. In chapter 9, we find concrete proof that the book of Numbers was not written chronologically, something I addressed last week. In verse 1, we read that the first month in the second year, Hashem spoke to Moshe, but in chapter 1, we discovered that the command that opens the book came in the second month of the second year. Why is this significant? Well, it shows that there was a different method of organization that was chosen for this book than simple chronology. And it is this that allows us to then dissect the text and discover what it is that binds the text together if it's not the order of the things. And I hope I'm making a solid case for the thematic organization of this book. Because the chronological view is one that teaches nothing but simple history. The thematic view, however, teaches so much more. So when we open chapter 9, we read of the command to keep the second Passover. And as we read, we find that there were some men who were not able to keep the Passover because they were under the condition of corpse defilement. Once again, we see this idea touched on in the text, but there is not as yet any solution to this problem. Regardless, these men were feeling left out at the least and concerned for their own safety and well-being at the worst because they were not able to keep both commands. And at this time, the deaths of Nadav and Avihu would have been fresh in everyone's minds, and the corpse defilement that these men were under may very well have been from this event. They could not keep the Passover, and they could not eat a sacrifice while unclean. And yet the command was to keep the Passover. Anyone who didn't do so was to be cut off. And so they approach Moses with this issue, and Moses doesn't know the answer either. And so the question is brought to Hashem. And Hashem responds with an acknowledgement that there will be cases where the Passover will not be able to be kept because of corpse defilement, but also perhaps because of man's simply out of town on a trip. In these cases, there is an allowance made for a second Passover to occur 30 days later in the second month for those who missed it in the first go-round. But this allowance for a second Passover is not an excuse to simply just blow off the first If you can make the first, you should make the first. Not only should you, but if you fail to participate and you are capable of participating, then you will be cut off from the people. 
a severe punishment for not keeping this holy day. And the ger, the foreign worshiper of Hashem, is to keep the Passover according to the same rule, because there is one law for both the native-born and the ger. And then finally, chapter 9 closes with the topic of the cloud that covered the tabernacle by day, that had the appearance of fire by night. And it was this cloud that was the indicator from God that the camp was to move. And it was this that was the indicator that the people were to stop and camp. And in verse 20, it is this movement of the cloud that's likened to a command straight from the mouth of Hashem telling them to move or to stay. It was not Moses. It was not Aaron. It was not the Levites. It was not the elders. It was not the judges. No one person guided Israel. No one person was responsible for where they went or when they went. Now, as we've talked about in previous lessons, Israel was to be guided by the Spirit of God in their journeys. And as we looked at Ezekiel 1 and the creature that Ezekiel saw that was representative of Israel, this was the quality that was explicitly stated in Ezekiel 1 verse 20. Wherever the Spirit was to go, they went because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And if we sit back and consider this entire passage from one end to the other, it is this that binds it all together. From one end of the Parsha to the other, there are pointers to this fact, that Israel was to be led by the voice of God, the Spirit of God, the command of God. In the beginning of this Parsha, from the last verse of the previous chapter, it was between the Karavim that Moses heard the words of God. His voice led everything that Israel did. And in several places in Scripture, we find the menorah representing the Spirit of God. Zechariah 4, 2-6 And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I have looked and see a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven spouts to the seven lamps, and two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Then I responded and spoke to the messenger who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my master? And the messenger who was speaking to me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my master. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of Hashem to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Hashem of hosts. In Revelation 4, verse 5, And out of the throne came lightnings and thunders and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And the cloud and the fire speak of the presence of God among the people. When God began to lead the people out of Egypt, he did so as a pillar of cloud and fire. Exodus thirteen twenty one through 22 And Hashem went before them by day in a column of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a column of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. The column of cloud did not cease by day, nor the column of fire by night before the people. Or Exodus thirty three seven through 9 And Moshe took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tent of appointment. And it came to be that everyone who sought Hashem went out into the tent of appointment which was outside the camp. And it came to be whenever Moshe went out to the tent that all of the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moshe until he entered the tent. And it came to be when Moshe entered the tent that the column of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tent and he spoke with Moshe. And when the people get to Mount Sinai, when Hashem descends on the mountain, how is that event described? 
Exodus 19.18 And Mount Sinai was on smoke, all of it, because Hashem descended upon it in fire, and its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the mountain trembled exceedingly. And when Moses goes to the top of the mountain after the golden calf, as God is appearing to him in a limited capacity, how was this described? Exodus 34, verse 5. And Hashem came down in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Hashem. And there are many, many other such examples. From the beginning and the end of the partial, we find that there are allusions being made to hearing the voice of God. Whether it's the voice speaking to Moses or the cloud moving being as the mouth of God giving the command to move. This entire passage is packed with this idea. And there in the middle, we find God appointing others to serve and to lead on his behalf, a chosen people to guide the people in their worship. And as we will read next week, this chosen people to guide the people on their journeys. And this chosen people act as the bodyguard for the holiness of God and for his holy items that were used solely in his service. This is the challenge being set before all of Israel. Will you obey the voice of God? Will you go where he leads? Will you go when he leads? You see, it's not often that the Spirit of God leads his people to places of comfort and relaxation. When it does, it's usually only after a time of trial and testing, and it's usually before yet another time of trial and testing. We see this clearly in the Torah. Israel was led from their captivity out into a dead end, a place with no escape. And then they were led to a place with an escape, and a place that only Hashem could provide. And then they were led into a wilderness, a place without water, until the people were parched and without hope and ready to give up, and then he provided water. And this place was also a place without food, a place of hunger and discomfort, caused to suffer hunger as a test of their willingness to follow the leading of God. Deuteronomy 8 speaks on this clearly. Deuteronomy 8.3 And he humbled you, and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. When the Spirit of God leads us to a place, it rarely looks like something that we would desire. It never looks like something that the world would expect. It looks like lack and want and hunger and thirst and discomfort. And this is not something that ends in the Torah. We find this idea reflected throughout the scriptures. Yeshua was led by the Spirit, and where did it lead him first? Matthew 4.1, then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tried by the devil. Yeshua was led as Israel was led into the wilderness in order to be tempted, tested, and tried. A journey that all who are led by the Spirit experience at one point or another. Throughout the Tanakh, we read of experiences that people have with the Spirit, and rarely does what happens make any kind of human sense. Consider the prophets who heard from God and were to speak and act without question. Isaiah 20, 1-3 and in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. At that time, Hashem spoke by means of Isaiah the son of Amot, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. 
And Hashem said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Mitzrayim and Cush. How about Ezekiel 4, 1 through 6? And you, son of man, take a clay tablet, and you shall lay it before you, and you shall inscribe on it a city, Jerusalem. And you shall lay siege against it, and build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, and set camps against it, and place battering rams against it all around. Then take an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city, and you shall set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it, and as a sign to the house of Israel. And lie on your left side, and you shall put the crookedness of the house of Israel on it. As many days as you lie on it, you shall bear their crookednesses. For I myself have laid on you the years of the crookednesses, according to the number of days, three hundred and ninety days, and you shall bear the crookedness of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, you shall lie again on your right side, and shall bear the crookedness of the house of Judah forty days, a day for a year. I have laid on you a day for a year. Or Hosea 1, 2 through 3. The beginning of the word of Hashem with Hosea. And Hashem said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a woman of whoring and children of whoring, for the land has utterly whored away from Hashem. So he went and he took Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Jeremiah ended up in a pit without food or water. Elijah ended up at a poor widow's house looking for relief from a famine. Naaman ended up washing himself in a filthy river in order to be cleansed of leprosy. All throughout the Tanakh, we read stories of men being led by the Spirit of God to do things that make no human sense. And this trend gets no better when we get to the New Testament. We read of the apostles being led by the Spirit throughout the book of Acts, and often the Spirit got in the way of their plans. Acts sixteen six through 7 And having passed through Phrygia and the Galatian country, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. When they came to Musia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. They were sent to places that were uncomfortable. Acts ten nineteen through 22 And as Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, See three men seek you, but rise up, go down and go with them not doubting at all, for I have sent them. So Peter went down unto the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Look, I am the one who you seek. Why have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the captain, a righteous man, and one who fears God and well spoken of by the entire nation of Judah, was instructed by a holy messenger to send for you to his house and to hear words from you. Jews were forbidden by their tradition from entering into the house of a Gentile even one who was well-liked and even a God-fearer, they couldn't go. And then we read that they were even led to their deaths. Acts 20, verse 22 through 23. And now see, I go, bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what is going to meet me there, except that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that chains and pressure awaits me. Being led by the Spirit, It's a chancy prospect, because he will cause you to go to places and to do things that your intellect will rebel at. Your mind will fight you at every turn when you follow the Spirit, because the Spirit will guide you to do things that make no sense according to the ways of our world. And this is how God uses people. When you are led by him, you will be asked to do things that truly don't make sense on the surface. You will be asked to put yourself out there, 
to be mocked and ridiculed. You will be led to put your life in danger. You will be led to places of discomfort and lack, hunger and thirst. When you take up this calling to be led by the Spirit of God, and you truly begin to allow the Spirit to lead in your life, I can tell you from personal experience, you will be forced to put the desires of your flesh to death for the sake of the kingdom of God. Galatians five sixteen through 18 And I say, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not accomplish the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you desire to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the Torah. And this leading is something that will be accomplished once again. Ezekiel 20, verse 33-38 As I live, declares the Master Hashem, do not I with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out reign over you? And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and shall enter into judgment with you face to face there. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so I shall enter into judgment with you, declares the master Hashem. And I shall make you pass under the rod and shall bring you into the bond of the covenant and purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me from the land where they sojourn, I bring them out, but they shall not come into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Hashem. As far as I can tell, this is a prophecy that has not yet happened. The people of God gathered from among the nations and led into a wilderness for the purpose of being tested and tried. And the rebels and transgressors will be cut off from the people of Israel. Maybe this has not happened before. Maybe it is yet future. Maybe it's happening even now. The question is, which side will you fall on when this happens in your life? When God leads you into the wilderness to follow him for the sake of his kingdom, will you follow and be ridiculed even by your brothers? Will you follow and go without the finer things of life? Will you obey to the point of beating or prison or even death? We all like to think that we would be willing to follow, and so I have to ask you this question. Are you following the Spirit of God today? Now, everyone listening to this right now is following the Spirit of God to some degree, I mean, you're not listening to this today if you weren't willing to obey him in some ways, even if it means ridicule from those that you love. Most of you listening at least this long, you're here because the command of God means more to you than social acceptance. But is this where it ends? Are you willing to face the ire of those we worship with if God asks us to do something crazy? I mean, imagine it. You are Isaiah, and God tells you to walk around naked. How many, even from among your own congregation, would rebuke Isaiah because he was being immodest? Or Ezekiel, laying on his side for over a year playing with toys? How many of us would rebuke him because he was not gainfully employed? Or Hosea, unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Jeremiah, Daniel, they're disrespecting authority. Are we so caught up in our religiosity that we're not willing to allow the Spirit to work in the lives of others? 
I have met this head on in my own life and I have been rebuked because I don't have a traditional job and I don't make a traditional wage. But I know that what I am doing is something that God has called me to. I know that he has called me to put ministry first and to put his kingdom first before all other considerations, even feeding my family. And he has proven himself faithful in taking care of that. Following the Spirit is not the easy path. It will lead you to places that you would probably rather not go. It will lead you through challenges that you would rather not face. But in the end, it is the only leader that's worth following. Romans 8.13-14 For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And this is the only thing of truly lasting value in this world. All the other things that we can pursue will pass away. But the things that the Spirit of God calls you to do, those will last forever. And so I end with this. Each one of you, listening to my voice, has answered the call of the Spirit at one point or another, more than likely. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't even be sitting here listening to this. Each of you accepted the prospect of at least ridicule from the world for the choices that you make and the way that you live your life. But as you've continued in your walk, have you continued in this? Have you continued to walk in the Spirit? Because the voice of God will call you to do crazy things. Matthew fourteen twenty five through 29 And in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a phantom. And from fear they cried. But immediately Yeshua spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Master, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Yeshua. There were twelve disciples on that boat. Only one obeyed the voice of the master when he called, and he was only called because he was willing to be called. And this one did something amazing, something that no one else has ever done. He walked on water. Twelve who were disciples were not even open to the chance of being called to do something amazing in this moment. Only one was eager to be pushed to the limits of physics. Only one chanced being ridiculed by his friends and brothers. And yet, even this one, after he began, he got distracted. He got worried. His mind rebelled at what he was in the middle of doing, and he lost sight of the master. And in the end, he fell, just as all men tend to do. Now, Peter may have faced ridicule in that moment as he was being pulled back up into the boat, the others laughing at him in his wet state, the told-you-sos and the rising-above-yourselves and the God-put-physics-in-place-for-a-reason-and-you-are-not-God-or-his-son, the comments of brothers who don't understand the call that he faced. But Peter, for a moment in time, he stood on the surface of the water, for a moment in time, he did something that no one else dared to do. He took a chance and answered the call of God. Did he fail? 
No, he walked on water. Regardless of whether it lasted, he did it. And he learned an important lesson that day. When you're called by the master to do something, don't stop. Don't let the fear and the worry and the doubt get in the way. So what if water can't hold people? God called you to it. So what if you can't escape Pharaoh's army because you're trapped? God called you to it. So what if all your friends laugh and point and shake their heads? So what if they walk away because you aren't doing it the way that they think it should be done? So what? Do it anyway. When God calls, when he tells you to do the uncomfortable and the impossible, do it anyway. In the days ahead, I feel we're going to begin hearing the voice of God more and more. He will begin calling and asking his people to do crazier and crazier things. He will lead us into a wilderness of the nations for the purpose of testing. Will you obey? Will you follow? Or will you be counted among the rebels and transgressors? Because that's where we are heading, both as a world and in the text. In the upcoming weeks, we get the opportunity to read of the challenges that Israel faced, and we get to read of the ways in which Israel failed. And we get to learn from their mistakes so that we don't repeat them ourselves. Let's pray that we learn the lesson. The simple fact of the matter is is that without this lesson, without the leading from the Spirit of God, we can never find life. So allow the Spirit to lead you as you darish chai, as you seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we... Seek life. Shalom.